It was a year ago, to this very day, in fact, that I was celebrating, and one of the best ways we have the opportunity to do that as a community of faith, I was at a wedding. Hallie Dean, granddaughter of First Baptist Saints Willard Dean and Yvonne Dean, married Riley Hovis near Charleston, South Carolina in Debadu. And it was such an honor to share in this celebration, to officiate this beautiful wedding, especially since Hallie and Riley's own relationship had blossomed right here in Greensboro. Riley, who was a baseball prospect, was a pitcher for the Grasshoppers at the time, and a regular occurrence throughout their summer romance was for Hallie to come to Greensboro from Charlotte, and for Riley, Hallie, and Grandfather Willard to sit right over here on Willard's Row and to attend church together. And so I first knew Riley as the grasshopper that was trying to date Willard Dean's granddaughter. Well, true to this, the wedding guests included plenty from his baseball pedigree. Now, I remember standing at the rehearsal with the groomsmen. The bride and the bridesmaids had yet to arrive, and that's when Willard Jr., father of the bride, kind of slid up next to me, and he coolly gestured at the tallest of the groomsmen. Do you know who that is? He said, I did not. And he replied, that's Corey Seager. Seager, at that time, was World Series MVP for the Dodgers in 2020, which is an achievement that he repeated just this past week for the world champion Texas Rangers. All of which made what happened next even better and makes this story perhaps more than just a flex about my celebrity sighting. Time was passing, you see. And the bride and bridesmaids had still not arrived. And so Corey Seeger decided that he would get a round of drinks for the waiting groomsmen. He disappeared into the bar at the club. But he emerged a few minutes later on the landing and he shouted down to the groom, Hey, Riley, what's your dad's account number again? Corey Seeger. The highest paid Texas Ranger, fresh off a new summer contract, was not above a free drink. <laughs> now perhaps it's just that cash or card aren't accepted in the club in Deverdu. But I prefer to take from this story a more universal truth, and that is that we all appreciate generosity. We are in a season of our year when we consider generosity, when we think about our commitment to our shared life, a season, to use the churchiest of words, that we call stewardship. It is a time when those of us who have said, this is my church, this is the place where I grow and serve, this is the place where I am committed, this is a place that has a distinct presence in my life and in the life of this community. This is a place where I sense dynamic ministries, where I sense a range and an impact of life and love. It's a time when we who are committed consider how we will support this in the coming year. And it's also a time when we invite those who are newer to our church to consider joining us in membership. Not because it's a formality, but because it is a way in which your gifts and your voices and your leadership become an essential part of shaping who we are still becoming as a church that is seeking to be faithful and is yet unfinished in the way that God is calling us to go. It is a time when all of us 
acknowledge the gifts shared in this place where we celebrate the incredible generosity that has been passed down here through the ages. And so for these next few weeks, we're going to consider how we practice our faith by living generously in our financial lives, yes, but in our whole lives. This week, considering what we give, and next week, talking about how we give. And on November 19th, our Pledge Sunday, we'll reflect on what happens when we give. Jesus once said, give as it has been given to you. Though sometimes in our lives, this comes to us easier than others. It was some years ago at a church meeting. It was not at this church, but a church not too far from here, you see. That a member of the church shared a testimony of his Christian faith, and particularly his generosity to the church. He was known to be a financially wealthy man, and he said, I attribute my wealth to the blessings of God. And he went on to recall the turning point in his relationship with God, as he described it. As a much younger man, in a more challenging time in his life, he was broke, he was working hand to mouth, he had put in a day's work, he had earned a dollar, and he went to the church service that night, and the speaker was a missionary who was telling about their work halfway around the globe. So before the offering plate was passed around, the pastor of the church told everyone that everything that was collected that night would be a love offering, would be given to this missionary to help fund their work. And this not yet wealthy man, he wanted to give, but he knew he couldn't make change from the offering plate. So he knew he either had to give all that he had or give nothing at all. And at that key moment, he decided he'd give it all to God. And looking back, he said he knew that God had blessed that decision. And he believed that that's why he was so materially wealthy to that day. And he finished that story and he walked down from the pulpit amidst the silence in the room. He returned to the pew. He sat down satisfied. And that's when a veteran church member seated behind him leaned forward and was heard to say, Hey, psst, I dare you to do it again. Sometimes this generosity is easier said than done, and it can fluctuate depending on circumstance and stage of life. It's one thing when we're loosening our grip on a coin or a dollar that we've just been given or earned, and it's another when we're asked to release and trust what we have gathered and accumulated and tightly grasped and possessed. Or it's another when it's turning loose of what we're relying on to get us through the night or to pay the mounting expenses or to provide for someone who depends on us, what are we supposed to take from that? And yet, regardless of the circumstances or stages of life, this kind of faithful, open-handed living is a practice that is so tied to our spiritual health that it appears all throughout the Scriptures. As in the description of those early Christians, their glad and generous hearts, their definitive feature. Or as in our passage today, in Paul's call to the Christians in Corinth to be cheerful in their giving to those in need. Generosity and health are tied together. The authors Chris Willard and Jim Shepard define generosity as, quote, a lifestyle in which we share all that we have, are, and ever will become as a demonstration of God's love and as a response to God's gifts of grace. Generosity is a lifestyle, they say. My own call to live generously first began with coins taken from my mother's pocketbook and sprinkled in the offering plate during my favorite part of the service of my childhood. And then there was one memorable moment. I guess I was about eight years old. It was a Saturday night. I'd already gone to bed when my parents snuck past my younger sister's room to mine and they told me they needed to talk to me in the kitchen. And there on the table was my first allowance. And right next to the allowance, there was this box of offering envelopes marked Seminole First Baptist Church. And that kitchen table rite of passage led Seminole Baptist, First Baptist Church and Lakeside Baptist later to receive weekly offering envelopes jingling with 
first 10 cents and then later 50 until finally my earning capacity led to less jingling and more silent bills. Whatever the allowance I was given or later what I earned in summer or after school jobs at the golf course or the camp, I was taught to give back to God. To give, in fact, a tithe, one-tenth to God through the church. But as a young adult, when it was all earnings and it was not allowance, and then when I was paying my own bills, and then when I was unrooted and I didn't have a stable church that I loved, I admit I fell out of the practice of this kind of generous and purposeful and deliberate giving, and I tightened my grasp around what I needed. And it was for any number of reasons. Student debt, an engagement ring that had to have just the right clarity and size. And then there were honeymoon experiences. There was a first home. There were vet bills for a hopelessly spunky dog. There were car payments. There was a motorcycle purchase, immediately followed by motorcycle insurance, and then countless, countless motorcycle repairs. And as you can tell from the fact that I had a motorcycle, this was all before children, <laughs> before their financial needs ever entered into our consciousness. And so I gave here and there, sometimes to a church, sometimes to a friend or to an organization I believed in, but it was not deliberate. It was not what I would define today as generous and and it wasn't really opening my hands with any kind of cheerfulness or gladness or joy. And that makes me like the majority of people, actually. A few years ago, researchers at Notre Dame launched a study of practices of giving that they called the Generosity Project. This was a sociological analysis of why people give and how. And according to their findings, two-thirds of U.S. Americans believe it's important to be generous, yet almost half of those that they surveyed gave no money at all, not to charity, not to a church, not at all. And that's part, I think, of what makes the lifestyle of generosity to which the people of God and the followers of Christ are called so bold. The generosity that's described throughout Scripture, it's daring, it's counter to all of the patterns of this world. Just consider that biblical concept of the tithe, giving one-tenth of what we've earned. This was originally an agrarian concept, giving 10% of your harvest beyond yourselves for a greater good than your own household. Now some would do this multiple times a year, increasing that percentage beyond 10%, and eventually it expanded into a standard of religious commitment. Now we're going to talk more about tithing, where it comes from, what it means, and what it doesn't next week, but sometimes I think we have seen it backwards. As we see in the practice of the tithe, the biblical witness is not really about deciding to meet some certain percentage of what we will give to God. It's more about discerning what we will keep for ourselves from what God has given to us. In the New Testament, for instance, the call to lives of generosity intensifies even further. Roughly 20% of the Gospels talk about resources, financial resources, where we are investing ourselves, because how we spend, it guides us, it shapes us. You can consider the woman who poured expensive perfume on Jesus, spending more than a year's wages in the process. And Jesus did not chastise her for choosing to be so generous. He praised her because she was willing to do this in an extravagant way. Zacchaeus was so impressed with Jesus that he pledged to give half of all his possessions to the poor and to reimburse anyone he had cheated by paying them back four times that amount, and this was a radical display of generosity for a wealthy tax collector who had become wealthy at the expense of others. And then in Acts, we read that Christians sold homes or land and they brought the proceeds to the gathering 
so that the money could be used for those that needed it most. And they did this with glad and generous hearts. It's also in Acts that we hear the background on one of the most prominent themes in the writing of Paul, and that is the collection for the churches in Jerusalem about which Paul is writing in 2 Corinthians. But in Acts 11, it is described that a prophet named Agabus stood up and foretold by the Spirit that there would be a great famine all over the world. And so in response to the famine, the disciples determined everyone according to his ability to send relief to the siblings living in Judea. And they did so, sending it to the elders by the hand of Barnabas and Saul, Acts 11 says. And this relief was called the Jerusalem Collection. Paul has a lot to say about this collection. We learn in Galatians that the leaders of the Jerusalem church had urged him to, quote, remember the poor in Jerusalem, which Paul was, quote, very eager to do in Galatians 2. And by remember, Paul didn't mean just cognitive recollection. Rather, Paul set out on a mission to bring financial relief to these poor saints in Jerusalem. And he talks about it in many of his letters. For instance, while Paul was in Corinth, He sent a letter to the house churches in Rome and he spoke about the collection with much excitement. The gift was more than just financial relief, but it was a symbol in this case of racial and ethnic unity. For they, the Gentiles, were pleased to do it, Romans says. And indeed, they owe it to them. For if the Gentiles have come to share in their spiritual blessings, they also ought to be of service to them in material blessings. The church at Corinth was also eager to participate, as were the churches through Galatia, Philippi, and probably some others as well. And this gift was so important that Paul spent an entire two chapters talking about it in this second letter to the house churches in Corinth, in 2 Corinthians 8 and 9. And some scholars think that this section of 2 Corinthians was originally a separate letter altogether, which was later pasted in to the larger writings of 2 Corinthians. And that would mean that Paul devoted an entire letter just to talking about this benevolent collection for Jerusalem. Because for Paul, this serves a few different purposes. One, it provides relief for those in need. That's the base of it. But it also connects the Gentile churches of the Aegean culture with the Jewish churches of the Palestinian culture to re-energize the church and to frame for these Christians the meaning behind their gifts, why they matter to God, how they should be given, and what happens when such gifts are made. Paul was fixated on relief for a certain segment of Christians in the world, but he was also concerned with those who were being called to give. He was concerned with the fact that all of those who follow Christ have a call to live with the generosity made possible by the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. And so you notice the imagery in the passage that was read. This is the imagery of an agrarian lifestyle. It's the imagery of gardening. The one who sows sparingly will reap sparingly, and the one who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. This has been heard over the years, sometimes as a negative claim. You reap what you sow. All actions have consequences. You get what's coming to you, we sometimes hear. But what if we heard it differently? You reap what you sow. The more you put into something, the more you'll get out of it. If you anchor yourself to something of eternal value, of spiritual significance, your life will take on that kind of character. If you give out of the abundance of God's gift to you in Jesus Christ, then your life will start to reflect that sort of abundance from the generosity of your giving will grow forth the generosity and the abundance of your entire life. 
And just think of what grows from that. The professor and scholar Daniel Day Williams says, love is what grows. And it grows as it discovers that its claims, its demands, and its fulfillment is the spirit of participation rather than possession. What is it that defines your life? Possession is so often our reflex, isn't it? To grip tightly, to hold closely, as though the best things in life are in short supply and they've got to be preserved and protected. Rather than to acknowledge that releasing our gifts, whether coins or bills or the gift of our very lives, that that allows us to participate in the love of God, in the life of Christ, and to think of what can grow when we open our hands like that. Father Henry Nouwen experienced this, especially in the latter years of his life. Many of you know his story how after a career devoted to academia, he gave of his life in the large communities, sharing life with people whose needs were different than his own, and finding how they met one another and gave to one another. And soon he found himself in a position to invite others to participate in that. He wrote a little pamphlet called The Spirituality of Fundraising, in fact, because he found that in this giving, there was so much value for those who were offering. He discovered that that kind of giving was not only material, was not only functional and practical, it was also spiritual. He writes this, The Spirit of Love says, Don't be afraid to let go of your need to control your own life. Let me fulfill the true desire of your heart. Indeed, if we give for the creation of a community of love, we are helping God build the kingdom. We are doing exactly what we are supposed to do as Christians when we give ourselves now in rights to planting and nurturing love here on earth. Well, then our efforts will reach beyond our own chronological existence. They will reach beyond our own lives. Today on this All Saints Sunday, we remember so dearly those for whom this has been true. Those who gave in such a way that it grew beyond the years of their life. Who did so through the ministry of this church, through choir or bereavement committee, through building stewardship, through offering leadership and teaching, and through giving faithfully so that their legacy might include the growth of this church. Just yesterday, I was sitting with our dear friend, Jim Klontz, and I asked him what I often ask grieving family members. I explain how when I leave a funeral, maybe this happens to you too, that I do so very often celebrating the good gifts of a person's life, but sometimes I find that it's even beyond that, that I am measuring my own life by what I have heard and celebrated of theirs. What do you hope, Jim? that people are thinking about and knowing and remembering about Carolyn as they drive away from a service where we have celebrated her fully. And Jim said thoughtfully, you know, she gave. She always gave. Whenever there was a chance to take, he said, she always gave. When there was a need, when there was opportunity, she gave. And that's what I want people to know. He wanted people to know, in other words, that she knew that secret that Jesus whispers throughout the whole of his life and ministry, 
that if you want to find your life and you give it away, I shouldn't say this, it's terrible fundraising, but the church does not need our money nearly as much as we need to be people who are generous. People whose lives embody this generosity of God. People whose lives reach beyond us in significance and meaning to places like this church. And that's the legacy that surrounds us today. Many of you know that in that ancient church, that church of great gladness and generosity, there was also great challenge. There was also hardship. In fact, services were often conducted not in large houses of worship, but in secret places that were safe from any kind of resistance or even persecution, like the catacombs outside of Rome. St. Jerome, one of the earliest historians of the church, says in his writings that as a boy, he and his friends used to play in the catacombs. And apparently this was a standard practice amongst the children of Rome because centuries after St. Jerome, children still played in those catacombs. And one day there was this group of boys that was wandering through the maze of tunnels. And suddenly, their only flashlight gave out. The boys were trapped in darkness. They couldn't find a way out. They were, as you'd imagine, on the verge of absolute panic. And that was when one boy felt around and he felt this smooth groove in the rock floor of the tunnel. And it turned out to be a path a path that had been worn smooth by the steps of those thousands of Christians in the early days of the Roman persecutions who had worshipped in that space. And the boys followed that path. They followed, you see, in the footsteps of these saints and they found their way into sunlight and safety. We give thanks today for those whose generosity has smoothed out just such a path for us. So may we find it, may our steps continue, may our lives produce the same kind of growth. May we remember that this happens only if we open our hands. Whether they clutch a coin or an envelope or something we've grasped far too tightly all these years, opening and finding as we release how our lives begin to grow, or finding what was described definitively of those early Christians. They shared together with all who had need. They gathered together their resources to something greater than themselves, and they shared around the table, and they celebrated, and they ate with glad and generous hearts. And may it be so. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. Amen.